Sightings of winged creatures flying through the sky have long been a staple of folklore, mythology and legend across the world and across time and cultures. In the ancient world, gods and monsters were depicted with enormous, scaled and feathered wings, whilst in modern times, sightings have become more and more diverse, from thunderbirds to the mysterious Mothman. Three years before one of the most famous modern sightings of a mysterious flying creature in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, there was a sighting almost 4,000 miles away, across the Atlantic, in a quiet market town in the southeast of England that bore a remarkable resemblance, and whilst it caused far less of a stir, it certainly drew just as much confusion. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Season 8, Episode 2 of Dark Histories. I'm your host as always, Ben, and I'm here this week with a story which is, I don't know if it's cryptozoological, UFOlogical, or or just a very strange story. But anyway, there's very little to report this week, so we can just pile straight in. So let's go with the story of the Hythe Mothman. Throughout history, there's always been a long and rich vein of stories and tales featuring bizarre winged creatures seen in the sky. From spirits, monsters, gods, angels and demons, the list of forms and the variety of shapes and sizes is almost endless. To take only a handful of examples, the Hindu deity of Garuda is described as the flying mount of Vishnu and often depicted either as a large eagle-like bird or as a part human, part bird amalgam, complete with a human body and face and the beak and wings of a bird. In Russian folklore, the Gamuyan is an all-knowing being that spreads prophetic messages of creation, gods, mankind and all things in between. Depicted as a large bird with a woman's head, the Gamuyan is, like many similar beings, closely tied to the long history of the Greek siren, a part woman, part bird, who would sing alluring songs to the sailors, tempting them to sail into dangerous seas. A much more modern literary invention, the gargoyle is often depicted as a shriveled humanoid form with large claw-like hands and bony bat-like wings. Forged from stone and brought to life as a golem, they were often linked with demonology and cast as the protectors and guards of many evil characters. Not entirely far from the gargoyles, the German-American folklore creature, the Snallygaster, is often described as a reptile with huge jaws and teeth, tentacles and large scaly wings. In the early days of German immigration to America, the Snallygaster was said to have terrorised communities of immigrants, swooping from the sky to snatch up its victims before sucking their blood. From Native America, we've got the Thunderbird, a legendary giant bird able to generate thunder with its wings and lightning with its eyes. Listing only a handful of creatures, the sheer variety and longevity of the mythological, literary or folkloric winged silhouette is immediately clear. From Fafnir to Smog, and from the Japanese Tengu to the Abrahamic Angel, the list is seemingly endless, with winged creatures featuring in writing from almost every culture around the world, from ancient history right up until modern times. Throughout history, however, there have been times when allusions to these mythological and legendary creatures have leaked over into the real world, where people have seen strange things in the sky and wondered if it might have been a thunderbird, or a gargoyle, or, like in Arizona in 1890, some kind of prehistoric giant, as reported in the Tombstone Weekly Epitaph on the 26th of April, 1890. Found on the desert, a strange winged monster discovered and killed on the Huachuca Desert. A winged monster resembling a huge alligator with an extremely elongated tail and an immense pair of wings was found on the desert between the Whetstone and the Huachuca Mountains last Sunday by two ranchers who were returning home from the Huachucas. The creature was evidently greatly exhausted by a long flight and when discovered was able to fly but a short distance at a time. After the first shock of wild amazement had passed by the two men, who were on horseback and armed with Winchester rifles, regained sufficient courage to pursue the monster and after an exciting chase of several miles, succeeded in getting near enough to open fire with their rifles and wounding it. The creature then turned on the men, 
that owing to its exhausted condition, they were able to keep out of its way. And after a few well-directed shots, the monster partly rolled over and remained motionless. The men cautiously approached, their horses snorting with terror, and found that the creature was dead. They then proceeded to make an examination and found that it measured about 92 feet in length and the greater diameter was about 50 inches. The monster had only two feet, these being situated a short distance in front of where the wings were joined to the body. The head, as near as they could judge, was about eight feet long, the jaws being thickly set with strong, sharp teeth. Its eyes were as large as a dinner plate and protruded about halfway from the head. They had some difficulty in measuring the wings as they were partly folded under the body, but finally got one straightened out sufficiently to get a measurement of 78 feet, making the total length from tip to tip about 160 feet. The wings were composed of a thick and nearly transparent membrane and were devoid of any feathers or hair, as was the entire body. The skin of the body was comparatively smooth and easily penetrated by a bullet. The men cut off a small portion of the tip of one wing and took it home with them. Last night, one of them arrived in this city for supplies and to make the necessary preparations to skin the creature when the hide will be sent east for examination by the eminent scientists of the day. The finder returned early this morning accompanied by several prominent men who will endeavour to bring the strange creature to this city before it is mutilated. This story appeared to be an exclusive as it was not repeated in Tombstone's second newspaper, The Nugget, which seems particularly strange given the size of this news. Of course, nothing ever came of the story and it appeared to die out with this single piece, making it increasingly likely that it was written by a journalistic chancer hoping to revive Tombstone's faltering economy. By 1890, the town's mines had all been closed due to flooding and perhaps the reporter thought an outrageous story of a gigantic flying monster might just be enough to bring the town back from the brink. Over 70 years later, the story was reinvented when rumours surfaced that photographs were said to have existed of a group of tombstone men standing with a giant flying creature. But it was all simply a product of the imaginative mind of the author of a magazine article that reprinted the original epitaph article, but with a few added sentences for maximum impact. He even suggested that the original story had included a photograph of the monster which, of course, it did not. In fact, there was not a single photograph accompanying any story in the entire newspaper, as was still common in 1890, where most papers featured only a few woodblock engravings, and even they were mostly on the advertisements. As sensational as this story may have seemed to be to the average reader, it wasn't entirely unusual. Strange winged monsters and anomalies in the sky were reported with relative frequency throughout the end of the 19th century spurred on by the scientists and inventors who had spent the previous century looking up at the sky and dreaming of conquering its mysterious ocean-like depths. These aeronauts, as they came to be called, had been building balloons and peculiar wing contraptions since the end of the 18th century, and flight was becoming closer to reality with every passing year. Though for most people, it was still fanciful enough to stir the imagination in fairly strange ways. As such, flying humanoid sightings always made a good story. Just like the one that appeared in the press three years earlier than the Tombstone Monster when the Sun newspaper of New York published a letter written to the editor on the 21st of September 1877 by a Mr W.H. Smith. Was it an angel? The remarkable cloud that Mr Smith of Brooklyn saw on Tuesday evening. To the editor of the Sun, Sir, on Tuesday afternoon of this week, a few minutes after six o'clock, I noticed from my window a very peculiar, solitary, vapoury object in the heavens. Its position was about where the constellation of the Dipper would be at the hour, vis-à-vis due north and 35 degrees above the horizon. In magnitude and contour, it in a marked degree resembled a human form, head, body and nether limbs, the body and limbs robed in shadowy drapery. The head, which was of brighter luminosity on the crown and forehead, had thick flowing hair, and the whole figure was extended horizontally, with the head eastward and the front downward. But there was another feature, quite as marked, and that was an appearance as of wings projecting upward and backward from the shoulders, and these in due proportion extended to the body and limbs. This last-named feature gave the entirety the appearance of an angel, flying in mid-heaven considered as a cloud 
It was remarkable that it kept the same outline continuously, which is uncommon in those vapory objects. While I had it in view for a considerable time, as it progressed swiftly towards the east, the luminosity of the shadow angel was of a golden white and it presented a very beautiful appearance against the blue background of the sky. In addition to the startling outline of the object, the interest in it was greatly increased by it being, at the time, the only one visible in the whole northern heavens, except some low-lying black clouds on the horizon. I called the attention of several persons to it, one of whom discovered himself the resemblance that I did. This account gives one much to be sceptical about. Firstly, the letter itself calls the sighting a cloud, which it almost definitely would have been. But secondly, it was reported by the Sun newspaper, a New York paper that had a habit of spinning tall tales for entertainment and sales. One prime example being the multi-part feature about the discovery of man-bats that lived on the moon from 1835. Three years later, a more interesting piece appeared in the somewhat more reputable New York Times that more closely followed the blueprint for a suspected aeronaut sighting on the 12th of September 1880, though the description of the figure itself seems to owe more to myths and legends than any quirky inventor. An aerial mystery. One day last week, a marvellous apparition was seen near Coney Island. At the height of at least a thousand feet in the air, a strange object was in the act of flying toward the New Jersey coast. It was apparently a man with bat's wings and improved frog's legs. The face of the man could be distinctly seen and it wore a cruel and determined expression. The movements made by the object closely resembled those of a frog in the act of swimming with its hind legs and flying with his front legs. Of course, no respectable frog has ever been known to conduct himself in precisely that way. But were a frog to wear bat's wings and to attempt to swim and fly at the same time, he would correctly imitate the conduct of the Coney Island monster. When we add that this monster waved his wings in answer to the whistle of a locomotive and was of a deep black colour, the alarming nature of the apparition can be imagined. The object was seen by many reputable persons and they all agree that it was a man engaged in flying towards New Jersey. About a month ago, an object of precisely the same nature was seen in the air over St. Louis by a number of citizens who happened to be sober and are believed to be trustworthy. A little later, it was seen by various Kentucky persons as it flew across the state. In no instance has it been known to alight and no one has seen it at a lower elevation than a thousand feet above the surface of the earth. It is without doubt the most extraordinary and wonderful object that has ever been seen, and there should be no time in ascertaining its precise nature, habits and probable mission. That his aerial apparition is a man fitted with practicable wings, there is no reason to doubt. Someone has solved the problem of aerial navigation by inventing wings with which a man can sustain himself in the air and direct his flight to any desired point. Who is this adventurous flyer and what is his object? These are questions of immediate and enormous importance. Of course, the first impulse of the unreflecting mind will be to exclaim that the mysterious flyer is an aeronaut who has invented practicable wings and is secretly experimenting with them before making his invention public. This is directly at variance with the known habits and customs of aeronauts. Had any aeronaut invented a pair of wings, he would have advertised, long before his invention was perfected, that he was in possession of a machine wherewith to make an aerial voyage to Europe in 24 hours and that he was prepared to exhibit it for a few weeks to everyone who would pay 50 cents to see it. A little later, he would have taken up a subscription to pay the expenses of his proposed voyage in the interests of science and would probably have published a book on the science of aeronautics. Then he would have suddenly disappeared, taking his wings with him or accidentally burning them. And after the first outburst of indignation on the part of a swindled public, he would have been totally forgotten. This has been the invariable practice of these ingenious aeronauts who have claimed to be the inventors of balloons or other apparatus capable of navigating the air. That the mysterious flying man has not followed this custom makes it perfectly clear that he is not a professional aeronaut. Beyond any question, either the flying man or some scientific person at present unknown has invented the bat's wings and frog's legs with which the flying man now sails through the air. Why has not the inventor patented this invention and had himself duly written up by the press? The reason is obvious. The flying man is engaged in some undertaking which he cannot safely proclaim. In other words, he is an aerial criminal, a fact which explains the cruelty and determination visible on his countenance 
And what can be the nefarious object which this probate wretch has in his view? It cannot be simply theft and robbery, for it would manifestly be impossible for him, in his flying costume, to perpetuate burglary or highway robbery, or to pick pockets. It cannot be plumbing, for obvious reasons. Neither can it be the sale of books published by subscription only. Yet the flying villain must have an object, and we have a right to assume that only a peculiarly nefarious object could induce a man to fly to New Jersey or St. Louis in hot weather and without an umbrella or mosquito net. Despite the article's eventual obvious comedic tone, the original description of the man-frog-bat thing that was flying in the sky was fairly frightening and no doubt would have been far less humorous to those that did witness it above the New Jersey skyline. Similar flying men, or winged creatures, appeared sporadically throughout the first half of the 20th century. But it was the 1960s and the 1970s where things began to take a strange turn. Undoubtedly, the most infamous case of a winged monster, and the one that would more or less create a genre in the encyclopedia of strange sightings, happened in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, in 1966, which saw the birth of a creature known as Mothman. It was almost midnight on a cold Tuesday night in mid-November when two couples, Roger and Linda Scarberry and Stephen Mary Mallet, were driving together along Route 62, a road running parallel with the Kanawha River from north of Point Pleasant, 70 miles southeast to Charleston. It was a fairly desolate highway, its two lanes carved through acres of fields and forest dotted with sporadic farmhouses and dilapidated barns. The group were around seven miles north of Point Pleasant, as the four approached an area known as the TNT area, so named for its ageing, mostly dismantled, National Guard's factories that had produced explosives during the Second World War and had been long since abandoned. Driving through this area, they saw a pair of glowing red eyes in the distance by one of the crumbled buildings just off of the roadside. Roger Scarberry, who'd been driving the car, slammed on the brakes and the four watched as a dark shape described by Roger as, like a man but bigger, walked around at the entrance to the buildings. It was around six to seven feet tall and had large black wings that folded against its back. But it was the eyes that drew them all in. They sat and stared at it for around a minute before Roger snapped and gunned the car away from the scene as fast as he could. As they tore off up the road, a second creature, or the same one, no one could really be sure, seemed to appear by one of the many small hillsides that rose up from the road and disappeared into the tree line, and as they sped past, it launched itself into the air and gave pursuit. The Chevy engine roared as Roger pushed his foot to the floor in an effort to put fresh air between themselves and the creature, but no matter how fast the car travelled, the flying beast seemed to keep pace, even after they had hit 100 miles an hour. Without looking back, they drove to the Mason County Courthouse in Point Pleasant, chased all the way by the creature which was screaming behind them apparently squeaking like a big mouse once at the courthouse they pulled up and ran to find deputy sheriff millard halstead on duty who bore the full brunt of the four panic-looking youths blurting out a highly peculiar story seeing the fear on everyone's faces the deputy took their story more seriously than most might imagine but as he later explained he had known all four for their whole lives and he had no reason to doubt or suspect them of any monkey in a round. Jumping into his patrol car, he followed Roger's Chevy back to the spot at the TNT area where they had seen the massive creature, but there was no sign of anything out of place. Roger noticed that a dead dog that had been hit by a car and left rotting on the side of the road that he had passed on the way back into town had now gone, but there was nothing else unusual and no sign of any flying monster. Just then, a loud, high-pitched, garbled noise broke the night's silence as Deputy Halstead had tried to call into the station on his radio only for the speaker to squeal out a surprising noise. Startled by the sudden squawk, he turned the radio off quickly, sending everyone back into silence, staring out into the darkness. The story was pretty big news right from the get-go. The next morning, the sheriff, George Johnson, called a press conference that everyone involved from the night before attended, answering questions for an excited press ring. The next day newspapers featured the story in the local and wider area and the creature was given its legendary name, Mothman, taken from the character of Killer Moth from a Batman comic 
that had been reformatted for a popular TV show at the time. As one would no doubt expect, the newspaper coverage that featured several quotes from Roger Scarberry describing the Mothman whipped up a good deal of excitement, and the nights following the initial sighting saw the TNT area flooded with thrill-seekers looking for the nocturnal beast, many carrying guns hoping to hunt down the creature. The next night, on the 17th of November, Mrs Gross, a Point Pleasant-based music teacher who lived opposite the TNT area, was awoken at 4.45am by her dog barking. The crowds, having long since thinned out and tailed off, the TNT area had finally fallen back into silence, and Mrs Gross was surprised at the dog, who was not normally so vocal. Pulling herself up out of bed to investigate, she saw an object hovering in the air from her kitchen window that she described as circular and the size of a small house. Stunned, she watched on for a few seconds before the glowing anomaly suddenly shot off into the distance, zigzagging away into nothingness. As the days passed, more and more people continued to flood into the outskirts of Point Pleasant, hoping to catch a sighting of the creature, and many were apparently successful. A pair of firemen, Paul Yoder and Benjamin Enox, saw what they described as a giant bird with glowing red eyes. It was definitely a bird, they exclaimed, but we'd never seen anything like it. A group of teenagers had a similar story to the original sighting, and an elderly Point Pleasant businessman chased the mothman off his front lawn after he'd snapped himself away from staring into its glowing red eyes for several minutes, where he said he seemed to lose track of time, transfixed. Whilst everyone else buzzed with excitement, Roger and Linda Scarberry struggled to come to terms with their own sighting, and after a week of hearing strange garbled squeaks throughout the night, which they could never locate a source for, they moved from their house trailer and into the basement of Linda's parents' house, where they hoped to feel more secure. Sightings of the Mothman continued for over a year, with their allegedly totalling over 100 locals who would eventually give their own testimonies of their own sightings. In general, All the witnesses' descriptions followed a similar trend. The monster had large, glowing red eyes, a wingspan of about ten feet that didn't seem to flap in flight, and a body the size of a large man. As the weeks and months went by, several theories emerged. That the creature was linked to UFO activity, or that it was a giant monster that had been living in the abandoned TNT factories, or that it was simply a misidentified bird, with the sandhill crane often shouldering the blame. When the Silver Bridge, connecting Point Pleasant across the Ohio River, collapsed on the 15th of December 1967, killing more than 40 people, the Mothman seemed to disappear, overshadowed by the much more immediate and tragic event. Seven years later, however, John Keel would link the two in his book, The Mothman Prophecies, suggesting that Mothman had been some kind of harbinger of doom. Nowadays, Thanks in large part to Kiel, Mothman has his own festival held annually in Point Pleasant and he sits high up on the list of infamous cryptids from history. In 1963, however, three years before the Scarberries and Mallets had uttered a word about the strange winged creature with glowing red eyes, a remarkably similar event occurred over 4,000 miles away in a small market town in Kent, England and though it caused just as much confusion as to what the monster actually was, As its West Virginian counterpart, the Kentish Mothman disappeared into the obscurity of history shortly after it was seen, rarely to be spoken of again. Situated on the southeast coast of England, 70 miles from London, the market town of Hythe in the county of Kent is a relatively small and quiet little town where the beachfront and promenade quickly give way to rolling hills and woodland. At one time, Its beaches would have been the site of a bustling harbour area that would have been one of the more important ports linking France to England throughout the Middle Ages. A picturesque mix of 11th century castles, medieval, Norman, Saxon, Georgian and Victorian buildings, its importance as a port and market are now long in the past and it exists only as a historical town with the crypt of St Leonard's complete with one of the largest collections of human bones stands as one of the sleepy town's largest tourist attractions. To the north of Hive lies Saltwood, a small rural village overlooking the marshland below, complete with its own 11th century castle with ties all the way back to the 5th century, whose claim to fame is that it once housed the four knights who would plot 
and carry out the violent assassination of Thomas Becket, the Archbishop of Canterbury, whose head they cut in two, upon the request of King Henry II. Centuries later, the old fortress walls were now little more than a private estate. For all its quiet seaside charm, it was here in Saltwood and Hythe that a brief and much less sustained case of Mothman fever erupted in the winter of 1963. It all began on the night of Saturday the 16th of November. It was a clear, cold night, following what had been a drab, overcast winter's day. As the clouds receded, opening up to show a blanket of stars, temperatures dropped down to just above freezing, and thin wisps of fog rolled off the sea, creeping inland. 17-year-old painter and decorator John Flaxton was walking to Sandling train station along Sandling Road, a narrow lane flanked with trees and hedges that acted as the main northern route out of Hythe and cut through the village of Saltwood. He was alongside his girlfriend, Jenny Holloway, his friend, Mervyn Hutchinson, who was also with his own girlfriend, all four of them having attended a party earlier that evening. There is some confusion as to whether or not the two couples were walking together or separately, depending on the version of the story that you subscribe to though the two available accounts do agree that all four were on the same road at the same time. As the group rounded an area by Sandling Park, they noticed a bright star in the sky that appeared to be moving, gliding above the tree line by an area known as Slaybrook Corner, where the road turns sharply west to north. A moment of alarm erupted amongst the four when they realised that not only was the light moving, but it appeared to be moving in the direction towards them. We saw a red flash in front of us, said Mervyn, like a red ball of fire going down the hill. Flaxton's report was similar, with a little added detail. It was uncanny. The reddish-yellow light was coming out of the sky at an angle of 60 degrees. As it came towards the ground, it seemed to hover more slowly. I grew cold all over as it vanished behind a clump of trees. Both young men, agreed that the light had grown larger before coming to a sudden halt, hovering for a moment and then shrinking down, disappearing behind a group of trees in a nearby copse. All four of them decided they'd seen quite enough and they began to run for the safety of the streetlights in the nearby village. As they began running, however, the light reappeared, described this time as a bright gold oval. It was about 80 yards away, floating about 10 feet above the ground. Curiously, It seemed to have some level of intelligence, as it seemed to move with them as they ran and stopped when they stopped. Just as things were in danger of turning into panic, the light once more dipped beneath the trees and disappeared entirely. Darkness surrounded the group, who were watching the sky intently, when a cracking of twigs and branches took their eyes to ground level, only to see a shambling black creature emerge from the high bushes beside them. It was the size of a human, but it didn't seem to have any head. There were huge wings on its back, like bat wings. This description, given to police by Mervyn Hutchinson, may have sounded bizarre, but it was somewhat more alarming to the officers that all four descriptions dovetailed so well, with one description adding that the creature had webbed feet. At first, no one seemed to know what to make of the strange sighting. Mervyn Hutchinson seemed convinced that the group had seen a ghost, which was also the angle that the local press were taking, though the national press did allude to the possibility of black magic when the Daily Mirror wrote a piece on the story published nine days later. Rector hunts ghost of Love Lane A ghost is said to be haunting courting couples in a village lane and the local rector is following up rumours that a black magic circle may be responsible for the terror. The ghost is reputed to be of William Tournay Tournay, a rich eccentric landowner who was buried 60 years ago on an island in the middle of a lake at Saltwood near Hythe, Kent. John Flaxton and Mervyn Hutchinson gave a shortened version of their sighting, though the piece seemed to confuse one or two details and then the rector was back on the case. The rector of Saltwood, the Reverend Eric Stanton, said yesterday... Several young people in the village have come to see me, saying that they've seen the ghost. There are rumours that a black magic circle meets in a secret hideout in the village, and that they are responsible. I have no proof yet that they are working in Saltwood, but I am determined to get to the bottom of this business, because it is disrupting village life. In another interview, he claimed, 
I've heard rumours that a black magic circle meets secretly in the village, but I have no proof. I'm making my own investigations. This is the evil sort of things that they would do. <laughs> the Daily Mirror report was curious for several reasons. First and foremost, it seemed that local people were conflating the death of a local character with the appearance of a headless creature with bat wings and webbed feet. At the very least, William Tornay Tornay certainly did exist, rather than being a figure made up of an overzealous journalist or some old local folk legend. And as it turns out, his burial was far from normal. Born in 1849, William T. Tornay was Lord of Brockhill Manor and Justice for the Peace of the Elm Division. In his younger days, he had enjoyed the social trappings of the rich and the privileged, hunting and collecting trophies, including that of a nine-foot-tall polar bear and a large collection of birds that his relatives donated to Hythe Town Hall after his death. In later life, it seems that he'd grown somewhat reclusive and gained a reputation as an eccentric, which was an accusation that was in no way helped by his somewhat unusual funeral arrangements. Following his death at the house on the 20th of August 1903, 60 years before the Hyde Mothman sighting, Tournay, already having gathered a local reputation for his reclusive nature in later life, had applied for a special permit to the Home Office that would allow his body to be interred on a small island in the middle of a lake a few hundred yards from the Brockhill Manor. With three temporary bridges having been built, one that was 31 feet long and 12 feet wide, in order for his coffin to be carried to the island. All of the bridges were destroyed immediately following his burial. Naturally, the death of a local member of the gentry, especially one already thought to be an eccentric hermit, stirred rumours, and it was soon circulated that he'd been buried alongside his dog, Daisy, after having his body wrapped in the skin of his favourite horse. Before long, the house was being talked of as being haunted, and even Tournay's death was causing whispered speculation that the entire family had been the victim of a curse. Frankly, the links made by the rector to the Mothman sighting and the ghost of William T. Tournay seemed tenuous at best and were likely the result of nothing but local folklore. The possibility of a black magic circle operating in the area, however, was something different entirely. By the early 20th century, witchcraft and the occult had begun to wane in Britain, especially following the Second World War, when people were increasingly living in wealthier, urbanised areas, with a state that was modernising healthcare and a plethora of entertainment on offer in the forms of theatre, radio and the newly popularised television, following the establishment of the public broadcaster, the BBC, in 1936. As a result, fewer people sought folk remedies or the advice of the long popular healers, well known within their communities as witches, wizards and cunning folk. By 1950, mentions of witchcraft had almost entirely fallen from the pages of the newspapers across the country. Even religion was moving away from mentions of witchcraft from the Bible and belief in hell and the devil fell to an all-time low. In short, as control and comfort increased in people's everyday lives, attribution of misfortune and struggle to outside forces eroded in turn. Rural tales and old old folk tales continued, however, and in the older generations, superstitious and the more traditional beliefs survived. With these beliefs, despite their ever-increasing fringe nature, a quiet suspicion began brewing in the new urban middle classes. What exactly was going on behind closed doors in those old rural villages? As commuting became more commonplace and quiet rural villages became enclaves for the ever-growing middle classes, who were both a clash with and a common exponent of the old oral folk tales of their new homes. The tales were often taken with a tongue-in-cheek, but deep down, a certain paranoia and fear crept quietly across the towns and cities of the country, bubbling away under the surface of old rural Britain and its folk beliefs, mixed with an increase in access to new spiritual beliefs and the modern anxieties of mass immigration and the Cold War. Whether or not the Reverend Eric Stanton really did believe there to be an operating black magic circle within Hive and Saltwood is never really concluded. There is, of course, every chance that the press, or even the Reverend, simply threw in the witchcraft angle for a bit of fun, stirring up anxieties. Perhaps ultimately, it was just not meant to be taken seriously. 
though the Reverend did conclude, at least, that he believed the stories in the area had been true. It definitely isn't a hoax, he said. Several youngsters have told me about the strange things they have seen. All were very frightened. Obviously, they have seen something out of their normal experience. Over the following week, the story seemed to grow, with all the teenagers of Hythe seemingly jumping on the bandwagon, claiming that they had also had ghost sightings up by Slaybrook Corner. Graham Leggett, an 18-year-old student, told a local newspaper that he had seen the ghost 18 months earlier. I was walking down the hill towards Slaybrook Corner when I saw a red light, and then this eerie bat-like figure appeared. I was frightened, but I didn't tell anybody then, because I didn't think they would believe me. An elderly local gentleman, William Waite, also claimed to have seen a bright bluish-white light in the sky that had crossed over Sanding Road and headed out to sea about a week before the Flaxton and Hutchinson sighting. A porter at Sanding train station also came forward, saying that he rode his bicycle to work right past Slaybrook Corner routinely and that he had both seen strange lights and heard weird noises on several occasions. At the same time, the landlord of a pub that John Flaxton and Mervyn Hutchinson had crashed into following their sighting stood up for the two boys, saying that they'd been as white as sheets and that it was no joke. Parties were organised by groups of people hoping to see the ghost and many locals began locking their doors at night. The Reverend carried out his own stakeout on Slaybrook Corner, but he saw nothing unusual. A failure which he blamed on his lack of psychic ability. I think you have to have experience with these things, he told another local paper. Others did see something. Keith Croucher, a 17-year-old apprentice electrical engineer, had been passing the Brock Hill School football pitch, just off Sandling Road, on the evening of the 21st of November, five days after the creature was first seen, when he saw a strange light hovering above the ground. I felt a sudden breath of cold wind and saw what looked like a golden mist beginning to cross the pitch. At the centre of the mist was a solid oval light that seemed to move slowly over the ground. The whole thing was about 20 feet square. I was frightened and ran away. When I came back, it had gone. Two days later, two teenagers, John McGoldrick and his friend, had gone out into the woods to investigate the sightings, hoping to see something for themselves. Their claims were fairly fantastic, if there was any truth behind them at all. In a clearing in the woods, we found a vast expanse of bracken that had been completely flattened, as if some huge and heavy object had rested there. Nearby, we found three giant footprints. They were clear footprints, almost two feet long and about nine inches across. They must have been a full inch deep. By the end of the month, the Hythe Mothman story had seemingly come and gone. With no new sightings, interest in the press quickly waned, and though no one seemed to have had any clue as to what the creature seen could have been, the mystery seemed destined to go unanswered. Then, in mid-December, two weeks after the last story in the local press had been published, a new headline hit the Kentish Express. Ghost, a flying saucer? It was a small piece on the front page, sandwiched amongst stories like Cat Given Kiss of Life and the announcement of the champion beef winner. But it was here that a new story concerning the Hythe Mothman emerged. That ghost which has been seen by several people at Saltwood recently may not be a ghost after all. Mr C.A. Strickland of the London Identified Flying Object Research Organisation says it was probably a flying saucer. Mr Strickland spent last weekend at Saltwood's Castle Hotel investigating the ghost reports. He said the glowing object seen in the sky and reports of balls of light and fire pointed towards a flying saucer having landed in the area. Reports of similar events in other parts of the country have been received, but even Mr Strickland was unable to solve the mystery of the headless figure with webbed feet which was seen. As it turned out, Strickland was one of several ufologists that had visited Hythe in order to investigate the strange sightings in the sky above Kent. In September of the same year, two months before the initial sighting, a flurry of UFO sightings had been spotted in the skies above the southeast county, all describing an object with an orange-red glow. These reports had started in Margate, then moved south to Ramsgate and then on to Hearn Bay, around 30 miles north of Hythe. In all cases, the light was seen hovering in the sky before rapidly shooting off out across the sea. Strickland had visited Hythe alongside Dr B Finch, a general practitioner from London. 
The ufology group appeared to be playing their cards quite close to their chest, and when they were interviewed by a local newspaper, Dr Finch said only that he had been investigating a series of sightings, and from what he had seen so far, he thought they could well be a flying saucer. In the same piece, Waveney Gervan, the editor of the Flying Saucer Review, a bi-monthly journal that had been reporting on the UFO phenomena since 1955, and the publication for whom Finch and Strickland would publish their investigation, thoroughly talked down the original sighting, saying that the creature seen by Flaxton and Hutchinson may have been imagination after being frightened by the red glow. At the same time as this investigation was underway, the two teenage boys, John McGoldrick and his friend who had discovered the giant footprints, claimed to have returned to the area with two reporters on the 11th of December where they found the wood lit up by a strange pulsating light. The four kept watch for almost 30 minutes, but they saw nothing but the strange light. Naturally, McGoldrick said that they were too frightened to go any closer. This story is interesting for numerous reasons, not least that they seem to back up the original sighting of a creature with webbed feet. However, it's also problematic for just as many reasons. In the 13th of December newspaper article from the Maidstone Telegraph that reported about the ufologist's investigation, it had been clearly reported that no evidence of a crater in the ground or any sign of a flying saucer or any other object came down has been found. Furthermore, no sign of any article appeared that documented the event, an article that most would imagine to be a surefire thing had two reporters really accompanied the boys and witnessed the pulsating light firsthand. Following the report of the ufologists coming to town, the story of the Hive Mothman came to an abrupt end. A short article did make its way to the March-April 1964 edition of the Flying Saucer Review, but it was short on both detail and conclusions. With no more sightings to report, the public interest dissipated and the story fell into complete obscurity, becoming heavily overshadowed by the far more numerous sightings of the West Virginia Mothman three years later. And that story, whilst having many unique elements, followed in the Hive Mothman's footsteps when it came to its legacy, blurring the lines between cryptozoology and ufology. So what really happened in Hythe in 1963 just remains a mystery. If it really was a simple ghost sighting, then why did the spectre of William T. Tornay appear as a headless, web-footed and bat-winged creature? And what of the numerous sightings of lights in the sky linking the story with UFOs? Whilst it seems unlikely that the Reverend's idea that a black magic circle may have somehow summoned the creature and how that this story surely couldn't hold any water, did his theories really sound any less bizarre than any of the other stories coming from Kent during the winter of 1963? Whatever it was, or even if it was nothing at all, it remains an interesting link in the chronicles of the Mothman creature and a fascinating prequel that deserves to survive even if it concludes as little more than a tale of esoteric curio that is almost as confusing in its details as its big brother across the Atlantic in West Virginia. So that was the uh, strange, very strange story of the Hythe Mothman. And, And there is some stuff to talk about after these short advert breaks. Today's show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we think about New Year's resolutions, there's often quite a lot of pressure as to, you know, what we have. Well, we can apply a lot of pressure to ourselves, you know, like the idea of like New Year, New Resolutions, you know, it's going to be a new me. But actually, sometimes we just need to stop and think that we're already doing a good job with our lives. You know, we're already a decent person. So what are some things that you want to keep about yourself for 2024? Some things that you actually don't want to change and instead Maybe you just want to expand on them because you're already doing it okay. Maybe you've finally organised one part of your space and you want to tackle another. Or maybe you're taking supplements every morning and now you want to actually eat breakfast too. Therapy helps you to find your strength so you can ditch the extreme resolutions and make changes that really stick. I've been reading these adverts for BetterHelp for a while now and I always say exactly the same thing. I think therapy is a huge benefit to Everybody, I think everyone can benefit from therapy, seriously. Uh, I, I've tried BetterHelp myself before I uh, took on the advertising. 
Um, and I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was really good. Uh, that it's really flexible. It was great for me because it, it's just so flexible. You just sit at home, you fill out a questionnaire, um, and then you get uh, basically given a therapist. You can change that therapist at any time, and it's completely free to do so. Uh, I didn't need to do so. My therapist was lovely. And then you basically just, uh, you know, do like online therapy. It's, it's to suit you, essentially. It's really flexible. It's easy. It's basically designed to be convenient. Everything about it is is made to, to fit your schedule. If you are thinking about maybe giving it a try, maybe consider BetterHelp. You can celebrate all the progress that you've already made in your life. Visit betterhelp.com slash darkhistories today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash dark histories. So it's the new year and I'm sure that many of us decided that, you know, we're going to start resolutions and then we put them off and we put them off. So it's time to get started. And how about you start those resolutions with Factor? Factor's ready to eat meal delivery takes the stress out of meal planning and it sets you up for success in the new year. You get to skip grocery stores, which are awful. You get to skip all the prep work, which you know, meditative, but perhaps you don't always really want to do, and cooking fatigue as well. Instead, you get chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door, with over 35 meals to choose from a week, including options like keto, calorie smart, vegan and veggie and more, plus over 55 weekly add-ons. You'll have a ton of nutritious and flavourful options to kickstart your resolutions. If you eat a little bit more like myself um, and you, you decide to sort of like forego large meals and sort of snack throughout the day, uh, Factor can sort you with that. Uh, they have a lot of options for snacks, uh, breakfast, smoothies, juices, uh, all sorts to keep going no matter what's on your schedule. If, on the other hand, you do need something for a special occasion, like a nice special meal, Factor can sort you with that as well. Gourmet Plus is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Basically, Factor's got everything you need for a week of flavourful, nutritious meals, from snacks to full meals to sides, anything you can imagine. Head over to factormeals.com slash darkhistories50 and use code darkhistories50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash darkhistories50 and use the code darkhistories50 to get 50% off. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Avey. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Welcome back. So, yes, the Hive Mothman, very strange story. Uh, it, I think if it wasn't um, for the Mothman in 66, this story would probably be just completely vanished now um, because it's so uh, brief, um, you know, in, in, in its, I guess the, the number of sightings are, is quite sparse. Um, but it's really fascinating in that it follows so much of the 66 sighting in West Virginia it's it, you know the real mothman it's it, it has a lot of things in common with the real mothman which I was I, that's what drew me to the story in, in the first place um it's obviously a much newer story than I'm used to I normally don't deal with anything sort of post World War II really that, that, that generally I, I tend to see that as my cutoff point but I I thought this would be a really interesting story to do I and so I kind of broke my own rules and and did one a little later Naturally, with it being so modern, I did actually think perhaps I can get in touch with these people involved and I did look them up. Sadly, it seems that um, John Flaxton uh, passed away in 2013, which is obviously, um, you know, very sad. Um, 
were either um and to be honest a lot of the other names were were also the same i suppose i kind of forget now that the 60s was a long time ago now <laughs> so yeah um yeah it, it it was slightly more challenging than i thought it would be um anyway I loved the story. I thought the monster was hilarious. It gave me like proper Star Trek original series vibes, um, you know, with uh, this kind of like, I could almost imagine this sort of polystyrene and cardboard creature coming out of the bushes. Uh, it, it was super like practical effects, right? Um, I, I say this as a joke, but I don't think it's a coincidence that you get that image in your mind from it. I think you get that image in your mind because that's precisely... Why, how he was described, uh, you know, that that was their frame of reference. I think that's how they described him. I think it's, yeah, it's no coincidence that he sounds like all of those kind of boggy creatures that uh, were around in science fiction during the kind of 50s and 60s. Um, uh, yeah, and I, like I said, I, I don't think that's any coincidence. I think, um, you know, that's where the imagination was drawing that description from. Um, I so yeah, I, I guess you can sort of tell from the way I said that that I don't think the story is true. I, I don't. The lights and such it, it were interesting, um, and I'll come back to that. But the actual sighting of the 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 the, the Mothman, the 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 winged creature with webbed feet, I I absolutely don't believe that to be true whatsoever. What I did find interesting was how paranoia played a part in all of these sightings going all the way back to the 19th century in the sense that in the 19th century you had these sightings and um, people tended to have a general mistrust and fear of the aeronauts and well aeronautics and and how flight might potentially change the world around them and how the government might use like the power of flight against people and so that seemed to be like a, a, a pervading um, sort of fear and paranoia that crept under all of the stories of people flying, seeing like flying objects in the sky in the, in the 19th century. Um, and I thought that was interesting. And as time went on, the stories changed, but the paranoia and the fear was always there. So in these kind of Mothman eras, like, like, like especially this Hyde Mothman, you you essentially like get the cold war paranoia creeps into the stories and it, it I, I find it very apparent that it creeps in um so yeah i thought that was really interesting how both stories 100 years apart are, are basically generated by fear and paranoia mothman itself like the virginia story obviously i told a very brief overview of the mothman case because you know the west virginia mothman could be an entire episode all by itself. It's a huge story. It's super famous. I probably won't do it because it's been done a million times. Um, but uh, it's an interesting story. Original, um, The Mothman Prophecies was written by a guy called John Kill. And um, I read a, a lot, I actually read about three of his books. And I read a quote from him in later life where he basically said something along the lines of that he, the Mothman was never real and that he didn't actually believe it at the time. And he wrote that like all of his um, descriptions and theories of, of these sort of, he called them like interplanetary beings. He had this like massive theory about um, sort of spacemen and stuff that, that, that was sort of about like, like almost like interdimensional beings and that. Um, but, but basically he came up before his death and said that he never really believed any of them and they were all just simply literary devices and that he meant them to be taken as literary devices Um which is a really interesting U-turn, but you never know people at the end of their lives. Who knows? Um, but yeah, that that that's what he said about the Mothman, which I, I found quite interesting. But yeah, I, I, the Mothman side of things, I say I, I'm not sure. I really believe that that in the Hive Mothman, I don't think these teenagers saw a webbed feet winged creature. I I, I think two um, teenagers that said they found a footprint that, not, that was never documented. You know that they, they said they took a, two journalists into the woods. No story ever came out of it. So I don't believe a word those two teenagers said, to be frank. But what I do find more interesting is the flashing lights and things like that, like the, the UFO side of things. I think I find that a little more um, sort of it draws me in a little more. I can I can start getting with the story there. I start believing it a little more um, because I mean, who knows what was in the sky? Of course, this again goes back to what I was saying, and it plays into the Cold War propaganda as, as a lot of ufology did back then. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. Um, 
I, I think, you know, yeah, there's every chance that there was like a, a bunch of sightings. What it could have been, who knows? There is a few RAF bases around about that area um, or an area, RAF base, not really around that area, but it, it's, uh, it could have seen like military craft. I don't know. Besides, I think that, that people see a lot of things in the sky that are often, uh, you know, well, unidentified. There's nothing wrong with it. The UAP UFO, you know, unidentified moniker. It doesn't mean it was of alien origin. It just means they didn't identify it. And I think people see that all the time. And and I don't really see why this couldn't have been like a series of sightings um, in Hyde at the time. Um, again, with the, the the ghost side of it, that that's super bizarre. I, I find that really strange. How they tried to like the the press and the locals tried to equate it to a ghost it's almost like it was two stories and 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 the press and people just sort of smashed them together and went yeah that'll do like they had this story of like local gentry who was eccentric and died in this like mysterious potential curse and so obviously he's become very ingrained in the local folklore um and so these first sightings were, were, were ghosts of him because that's obviously who people tack it onto immediately. It's like, oh, well, you know, he's the one that haunts the local area. It must be him. Despite the fact that he was described as having like wings and webbed feet. Now, I know the guy was a recluse, but it was presumably not because he was a hideous, like demonic form. Like he, he still looked like a human as far as I'm aware. Why he turned into this head, headless kind of bat frog guy is anyone's guess. I, I, that's a very strange part of the story, um, as is the re- the reverend coming out and saying that it, he believed it to be black magic. Um, that That's actually a, a very interesting topic um, and I, I something that I could potentially delve into in the future. Um, but it's, it's that the, the, the concept of um, Cold War England and the paranoia of the rural life uh is is a fascinating subject uh how you know you suddenly had all these kind of like this new middle class moving out into rural areas despite having like a clash with the traditions because they were all kind of you know like living like modern lives and stuff they they, they kind of ate up all of that old folklore because you know it was it, it was kind of uh you know rustic and and trendy so that they, they kind of ate all that up and um but in doing so, it basically kind of like, so it's, it, it, there's a lot, of, I'm getting really off topic now and I, I won't bore you too long, but there is a lot of people that say that um, uh, witchcraft and black magic and stuff basically died in the 50s and 60s, which I, I wrote a little about in this episode and how it, it didn't really regenerate until like the, the 80s and 90s. I, I, I believe that, that that's true to some extent, but it, it never truly died out. And there were always people that believed it and right up till today it's always been there bubbling under the surface of especially rural England and like I say you had these new middle class that moved out there and they they ate up all this folklore and it it, it stirred up uh, a sort of under the surface paranoia that went hand in hand again with the cold war paranoia of the others you know there was something you know some nefarious other that was out to cause harm and so, like these these kind of uh, Cold War fears were, were were easily grafted onto these sort of new fears of old tales, you know, and old folklore. And suddenly, you had these like rural types that people were suspicious of, like almost like you know, going all the way back to the 1600s and people being like afraid of that old lady out on the edges of the village who, you know, is a bit of a hermit, and so she must be a witch. And you had exactly the same thing happen where people would be like, you know, these rural people, they keep themselves to themselves. What are they doing behind closed doors? And you had this really interesting paranoia. And that is where the black magic circle idea comes from, um, I believe. And it's it's a really interesting subject and something which hasn't had much study about, actually. And I would love to, um, you know, do a PhD or something and write a dissertation all about it. But um, that will never happen. Anyway... I'll stop waffling because I'm really going on now and, and, and it's probably not making any sense. So um, thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the story. It was pretty weird this week. Uh, it's always nice to throw in a little kind of cryptozoological ufology kind of story. I, I love all that. Um, so I hope you enjoyed it too. Uh, if you have anything you'd like to uh, contact me about, you can do so. Uh, I'm on all social media. Um, also email um, contact at darkhistories.com is the email address. 
you can find all of that in the show notes uh, as you can also find the um, like uh, links for our sponsors and uh, links to the website and on the website you'll find everything everything you need if you want to contact me or anything else merch uh, support the show patreon all that kind of stuff links to that are all either in the show notes or darkhistories.com so yes that all does exist so anyway thank you very much for listening i will be back in two weeks with another episode so until then take care sleep tight (laughs) 